you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. We have moved ahead a bit in our study of the book of Proverbs. Not every passage in the book of Proverbs is given to this verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter approach. And so at some point in the very near future, we will circle back and we will categorize the various subjects addressed by the book of Proverbs and address them systematically in that way. For this morning, we have moved past the second half of chapter 3 and chapter 4, which are for the most part a series of uh, varying uh, Proverbs for life in general that we'll circle back to somewhere down the road. For this morning, I want our attention to be given chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. The focus of the passage is adultery or sexual immorality. I would note that the imagery used to describe this phenomenon of immorality and temptation is much more broadly applied. I think Solomon intends that on some level, that we would understand that temptation and enticement work uh, in, in much the same way, regardless of whether the temptation is toward sexual immorality or adultery or uh, some more broad issue. The imagery here is, by definition, broad, but there is focus here on the problems of adultery and sexual immorality in ways that, that uh, are, are clear and evident and that we're going to give our attention to in the time that we have together. I even attempted in the 8 o'clock service to take a more broad approach to what Solomon is doing in chapter 5, but there is by far enough meat on the bone for us to address here in chapter 5, specific to the problems of adultery and sexual immorality. It just got clumsy, so we're going to focus there. Part of the, the want to address this in a broader way is, is, frankly, the subject matter of Proverbs chapter 5 just sort of makes me sad a little bit, and so we'll try to navigate that along the way. And the pattern of temptation and sin that is observed in Proverbs chapter 5 just sort of makes me sad. Sin is itself self-destructive. And, and you've observed this in your personal experience. You've observed this in the experiences of those that you love and, and you care for. From the perspective of Solomon writing to children, you've likely experienced this as adults with raising your own children. You've watched them in self-destructive patterns or make self-destructive decisions that creates sadness and even frustration and anger at some point along the way. Far too often we are duped by the schemes of Satan, fooled into believing that what is forbidden will somehow bring pleasure. Just below the allure of Satan's bait is a hook with a nasty bite. That's the warning of Proverbs chapter 5, whether it be specific to sexual immorality or some other issue that comes under the broader heading of Proverbs chapter 5, but we're going to focus there where Solomon focuses in the time that we have together. I wonder sometimes when we meet together, there's always guests, there are always people that meet with us when we meet who are not believers, maybe not acquainted with the Christian subculture. I think that's probably a fair assessment. I wonder what their perceptions are of our focus on even the concept of sin. Culturally, it seems outdated, outmoded, antiquated, perhaps even irrelevant. And so that's sort of the, that's sort of the 
approach of our society towards sin. We don't think in terms of sin. We think in terms of doing what's right or doing what's wrong. But the notion of God watching over the decisions that we make and being directly involved in or providing accountability for is something that's dismissed altogether in the society in which we live. So that's the way sin is marketed. You got good things, you got bad things, that's sort of in flux. Sometimes what's good over here may not be good over here, and that is sort of progressively changing over time. And the culture, frankly, does a great job with marketing sin, with selling sin as something that can bring you satisfaction. And our discomfort with the, co with the concept of sin makes this sort of a friendly thing toward us, right? We're able to be dismissive of God's watch care and oversight over our life if we join the culture in dismissing any thought or conversation with regards to sin. That's the case. That is the situation as it stands. But you know intuitively, if not by experience, that making bad decisions reaps bad consequences. It's just hardwired into the world in which we live. You can market it however you want. You can, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. You must know, wh whether you're here this morning as a believer or someone who's more heavily influenced by the society around us, you can frame this thing how you want. But if you continue to make disastrous decisions, you're going to reap disastrous consequences. That is, on some level, the basic message of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 5. Without further ado, Proverbs 5 and verse 1, if you found your way there, join me in standing as we read God's word together. Proverbs 5 and verse 1, the Bible says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, her words are smoother than oil. In the end, she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps head straight for Sheol. She doesn't consider the path of life. She doesn't know that her ways are unstable. So now, my sons, listen to me. Don't turn away from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Otherwise, you'll give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources and your earnings will end up in a foreigner's house. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed and you will say how I hated discipline and how my heart despised correction. I didn't obey my teachers or listen closely to my mentors. I am on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams of water in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful fawn. Let her breast always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you be infatuated with a forbidden woman or embrace the breast of a stranger? For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes and he considers all his paths. A wicked man's iniquities entrap him. He is entangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there's no discipline and be lost because of his great stupidity. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There seems to be 
added passion to the tone of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 5. It's, it's common that Solomon would make his appeal in the language of family. Listen, my son. Listen, my son. That language is repeated in chapter 5 in verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. Again, it returns to the family language in verse 7. So now, my sons, listen to me and don't turn away from the words of my mouth. There seems to be an added level of passion here. Listen, listen, listen. The tone with which you've spoken and encouraging your children or someone that you cared for, that you observed self-destructing in sin. Listen, learn from my lesson, learn the easy way. Before you're given occasion to learn the hard way, listen, listen, listen. And I would say to you this morning as your pastor who cares for you and who is weary with counseling self-destructive people away from self-destructive patterns, listen to the wisdom of Solomon and listen to the word of God and don't take the bait Solomon says, come close and listen to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion in your lips, safeguard knowledge. Look at verse 3. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, her words are smoother than oil. In the end, she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps head straight for Sheol. It's the Old Testament word for grave or underworld. But it also stands as something of a euphemism for hell. So her feet go down to death and her steps head straight for hell. She doesn't consider the path of life. She doesn't know that her ways are unstable. In essence, Solomon says the bait is hiding a hook. It may look alluring. It may look tempting. You may be seduced to take the bait. You may be convinced in the heat of the moment that this will bring you pleasure, some degree of satisfaction, but make no mistake, if you go the way of disaster, you will reap the consequences of disaster. Effectively, Solomon says, what you think will satisfy you, if only momentarily, will ultimately lead to your death or to your destruction. She may be as smooth as oil, and her words may drip with honey. She will prove in time to be as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. This is what sin always does. This is what sin always produces. The reason we engage in sin, put it more generically, the reason we make wrong-headed decisions and do foolish things is because we're convinced in the moment that this thing will satisfy. This thing will answer for some need in my life. And what we can't see is that all the while, our legs are being cut from beneath us. Not only can it not deliver on what it promises to bring, but it robs us of the ability to enjoy what God has ordained. Don't take the bait. Same imagery is assumed by James in the New Testament. Warning against seduction. The language of the baited hook, the baited hook, it looks so appealing. It looks as though it will satisfy, but you bite 
and you will be taken. It will only end disastrously for you. She is not what she seems, nor is any manner of enticement or seduction from sin. Temptation is temptation for a reason. There is something in you that that enticement is appealing to. And you are left with the conscious decision as to whether you will trust your inner intuition, your personal wisdom, insight, or experience, or the wisdom and insight of an infinitely wise and all-knowing God. Like there's this perception that we have that God is our wicked taskmaster, demanding of us what we can't measure up to, robbing us of these fleeting satisfactions and joys that might otherwise be experienced in life when nothing could be further from the truth. Doesn't it stand to reason that the God who has fashioned us as we are would tend to know what is best for those he has created? I was a 23-year-old pastor when a lady in our church came to me and she said, I'm leaving him and I'm going to get a divorce. And I'm convinced prayerfully that God wants me to be happy. And I feel good about the decision that I'm making. I've prayed about it. My determination is that God wants me to be happy. Now, I will admit, as a 23-year-old pastor, I stood slack-jawed for a while, and it took me a little time to compose myself and probably spoke with greater zeal than with wisdom. But my response... The gist of my response was, that's the stupidest thing I think I have ever heard. I am not in the camp of those folks who would say that God is more concerned with your holiness than he is with your happiness. I think the statement itself is problematic. It suggests that somehow you're going to disconnect your holiness from your happiness. What I'm arguing for and what I believe the book of Proverbs teaches is that your happiness is directly married to your holiness. That the only way you're really going to know happiness and joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction in this life is by walking in the wisdom of a God who knows what is best. God does indeed intend that you would be happy and fulfilled and satisfied and pleased in every sense of the word. He's provided parameters for that kind of satisfaction. Knowing full well as our creator that to deviate from that path, to step outside the boundaries of his law, of his command, of his decree will only lead to disaster, dissatisfaction, displeasure, cataclysmic fall in our life, stepping outside of the wisdom of God can only produce disastrous results. Don't take the bait. There's a nasty hook on the inside. Solomon goes on in verse 7 saying, so now my sons, listen to me. Again, listen and don't turn away from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. In terms of practical advice, the first admonition Solomon gives his sons with regards to avoiding temptation is to just stay away. Just steer clear. Just get away. 
with, with respect to adultery, there was a Time Magazine study. It's been several years ago now. I don't know that you'd even be able to find it, although everything's out there on the World Wide Web, so I suspect you probably could. I was a little surprised at the time at the honesty with which their research was conducted. They were investigating the primary causes behind adultery, uh, sexual immorality as it pertained to marriage in general. What topped the list was not the kind of things you might assume would be there, like financial issues or intimacy issues or communication issues. Those are pressing issues across the board. The primary factor in adultery was just opportunity. Just the idea that you're in an environment where such things could happen consistently over the course of time and eventually things that should not happen do happen. I realize that we have been called as believers to be salt and light. And to be effective at being salt and light, we have to be pressed into the decaying world around us, casting the light of the gospel against the darkness of this world. But you must conduct yourself as salt and light with great wisdom. There is a setting in which you might be vulnerable or susceptible to sin, and such a setting should be avoided at all costs. I can remember as a new believer feeling impressed that I needed to take the message of the gospel that had saved me from my sin back to my friend group to share with them what God had done for me and how my life had been so changed. And it didn't take me long to realize that I did not have the tools necessary to pull off resistance to the temptation that awaited me there at that point in my, gro in my growth and development in the gospel. At that season in my life, I was not equipped with what I needed to be equipped with in order to navigate the weight of temptation that awaited me there. I had to remove myself from that environment. Again, there's a parental tone about uh, Proverbs chapter 5 and much of the book of Proverbs. You've experienced this as a parent if you're rearing children. There are places you just don't want your kids to be. There are people with whom you don't want your kids to be. Not because you know anything, there's any obvious sign, or because some person, some place is carrying a sign that says, come over here and join us in sin. But because you just know your perception is that something is amiss, something is just off. With regards to adultery and immorality, these kinds of safeguards ought to be really, really easy for you to implement. People like to mock and make fun of the so-called Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham would never allow himself to be alone with a woman without accountability or oversight. You may mock and make fun of that rule, but I tell you what you won't mock and make fun of. That's the marital fidelity of Billy and Ruth Graham. That's what you won't mock and make fun of. There is wisdom in removing yourself, separating yourself from the kind of setting or environment that might lead to some accusation or worse yet lead to something in reality actually happening. My sons, listen to me and don't turn away from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Solomon says, don't even go near the door of her house. He goes on in verse 9, otherwise you will give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources and your earnings will end up in a foreigner's house. 
at the end of your life, you'll lament when your physical body has been consumed. And you will say how I hated discipline and how my heart despised correction. I didn't obey my teachers or listen closely to my mentors. I am on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. I wish that the spiritual consequences of our sin were, were the kind of things that often provoked us to introspection or reflection. But usually, it's the practical consequences of our sin that soften us, that quicken the heart to the voice of God's Holy Spirit. Y'all with me? What I mean is, usually, we get really open to the work of God's Spirit and really glad for the work of the gospel when we get caught. Or when we, in some more generic way, begin to reap the fruit of the decisions that we've made. It is not just that there are spiritual consequences for sexual immorality, or succumbing to any temptation for that matter. It is that there are some practical consequences that come as a result of adultery, sexual immorality, or any sin. Specific to adultery, the kind of sin that Solomon is describing in our passage. He notes that you'll give up your vitality to others, your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources and your earnings will end up in a foreigner's house. Even your physical health stands to be compromised. At the end of your life, you'll lament when your physical body has been consumed. I'm on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. There are financial and physical effects that result from succumbing to this kind of temptation. We have a, a sensitivity in our society to the issues of, of poverty. It seems that every politician has some cockamamie idea about how we're going to address poverty, all of which come well short of the root cause of poverty as it's defined in our society. I don't say this as a castigation of anyone who has experienced such, been through such. That's not the point of this observation. But it is worth noting that if you could eradicate divorce, if you could solve the issues of sexual immorality in our country, you would eliminate poverty as it is defined in our culture. It would cease to exist. It would be no more. There would be no, get it down. Pastor Wade said there would be no poverty in the Western world except for fatherless homes and the sin of divorce. Now that's an objective fact. That's not a Christian position. That is an objective sociological fact. There are consequences of the sins that you involve yourself in. In so much as adultery is in that list, you stand to lose everything you've got. To have your very physical well-being taken away as a consequence of your sin. But the tendency is to not see it in the moment. To overlook it, to miss it. I, I find that by the time a person gets to the physical act of adultery... They have created this pseudo world in which they exist where everything is sunshine, roses, and rainbows. Far removed from the realities of the real world back with their precious wife. 
where children have to be raised and bills have to be paid and houses have to be cleaned and meals have to be prepared and appointments need to be made. No wonder you're so happy in this pseudo world. You have no responsibility. It's not a real world. And I hear of adultery happening. I, I'm, never, I'm never surprised that the physical act itself can happen, right? Like I was a middle school boy one time. I, I get how in the heat of the moment, someone can do something stupid, irrational. They could be impulsive, led about by the lust of the flesh. I get that. But what always mystifies me are the thousands of decisions made along the way between the moment of physical attraction or some emotional connection and the actual physical act of adultery. Were there not a thousand checks of the Spirit of God warning, cautioning, calling that you would turn back before it was too late? I know a lot of people come through here on a Sunday morning and there are probably some people that come through here that are involved in some manner of adultery. But I have to believe in my heart of hearts that there are probably quite a few people who could locate themselves somewhere on that spectrum of a thousand steps between physical attraction, emotional connection, and the physical act of adultery. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me when I say, woe unto you, turn back and repent of your sin before you make a decision that will reap disastrous consequences from now until the very time of your death. Repent, repent, repent. You don't see it now, but beneath the allure of that great bait is a hook that you may not escape. Solomon is warning his sons. Is it any surprise to us that Solomon would take an impassioned tone with this message? This is a man of great wisdom, but this is also the man who would be beset in his life and leadership by 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was not exactly known for self-restraint. And he's saying to his sons and all who will listen, learn this lesson the easy way from a man who learned it the hard way. This will not work out well for you. With all of the natural resources that anyone could ever hope to enjoy, he could not short-circuit what is hardwired into the constitution of creation. When you depart from the ways of God, you will, you will reap disastrous consequences. He warns them again and again and again. Strangers will drain your resources. Your earnings will end up in a foreigner's house. At the end of your life, you'll lament when your physical body has been consumed. In verse 14, he says, I'm on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. That's an interesting observation, isn't it? There, there's, a, there's another side to this conversation in, the, in 21st century America. I think this is probably true in any country in the 21st century. I, I, don't, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, um, but I don't think they're like these gangs of seductresses that are going around like, harassing men like that's not my experience maybe that says something about me I don't know you know maybe that's your maybe you have an issue with that right some sometimes when I'm messing with my children and and the girlfriend conversations come up I will I will say to them 
It's kind of offhanded that when I was their age, I used to carry a stick everywhere that I went. And then they'll forget, and they'll be like, what are you talking about? I said, to beat the girls off, you know? <laughs> that, that really has not been my experience. <laughs> but, I, but I can tell you, I can tell you of a seductress that is closer to every one of you than you might be comfortable admitting. Reach down in your pocket. There's a smart device there that you men and women are inclined to give into to yield to her seduction. And I'm just, listen, I'm, I, I say this with sadness in my heart. I am weary with counseling with couples whose marriages are being destroyed by the seduction of a smart device. I'm just weary with it. I'm just tired with it. And it's become so common. It's so normal. There, there have been three instances in the last month or so where I would be having a conversation with a young man and this issue of pornography would come up and I, I would say something to the effect of this is a bad thing. And they would kind of go, really? It's accepted practice. And I'm telling you, you're taking a baited hook, a baited hook, and it's destroying you. And you young men are carrying that baggage into your marriage, and it's destroying marriages as well. I'm just weary with it. And you ladies are not immune. This is becoming more and more a female issue than it's been in times past. And the allure is that there's this sense of anonymity. Secret sin has a special power of allure and enticement because in our estimation, no one else knows. But notice that listed among the many consequences of adultery and sexual immorality, Solomon notes, I'm on the verge of complete ruin, not privately, not secretly, not in front of my family, but before the entire community. Jesus himself has said, there is coming a day of judgment when what is whispered in the dark will be shouted from the rooftop. And dear friend, you will be no exception. I was talking to one of our pastors between the services about this issue. This is it's a, a, a prevalent issue, major, major issue. And, and he made the comment, you know, there needs to be some kind of mechanism, some kind of approach that allows for accountability and encouragement for those who just feel as though there's no way out, right? That's the, that's the balance, right? You want to deal convictionally and forcefully with this issue as a sin, but not creating this undue sense of burden and guilt and shame in the hearts of those who are beset by this sin and struggling to get away and to find liberty and to come out of that sin. Solomon answers this issue in verses 15 through 19. This is the anecdote. This is the answer. This is the resolution. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams of water in the public squares, they should be for you alone, not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful fawn. Let her breast always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. To be perfectly frank, the language of verses 15 through 19 is erotic. And there'll be no in-depth exegesis of these verses for this morning's message. But the message is clear enough. 
Lose yourself in the love of the wife of your youth. Be lost in her love forever. There's a, there's a parable that Jesus gives in the New Testament where he describes a person who has a, a, an evil spirit. And through discipline and self-determination, they're able to rid themselves of that spirit. And the spirit goes out into desolate places and finds seven other evil spirits. And they return to that individual after a time, finding them to be cleaned up and well in order. They're pictured in the parable as a house that's been swept out and cleaned up, ready for its new inhabitants to move in. That old spirit moves back, seven spirits with him, and the former status is worse than the first. It's not just ridding yourselves of some disastrous habit or sin, but filling that void in your life with something else ordained by God. It's not enough that we would labor to be disciplined and to walk in some degree of external righteousness. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God with regard to ridding ourselves of immorality in this sense it's not enough that we resist temptation by sheer will and self-determination, but that we find satisfaction and fulfillment in the God-ordained means that God has provided in the gift and institution of marriage. There's a, there's a sinister underbelly to what Satan does with this baited hook. Not only are you biting at in temptation what will ultimately be your undoing but your appetite is being conditioned toward the things of hell along the way Have you ever experienced how quickly your appetite can can change i try to eat at various times in a healthy way and to be quite honest this church is terrible for good eating habits when i came to be the pastor here I hadn't eaten sugar or bread in three years. Three years. One of, one, of our, one of our ladies made a coconut cake. That was my undoing. She brought that coconut cake to church. And I ate coconut cake until my face tingled. You've eaten too much sugar when your face tingles. You know, you eat a little of that. Next time around, your face doesn't tingle so much. You can handle a little more than you did the last time. I really like, in 2008, when the economy crashed, I think the worst thing that happened during that whole financial crisis was the bankruptcy of the hostess company that makes those big honey buns they sell in the convenience store. Usually, I'll buy two of those. I'll buy one with the big, thick, white covering, and then one without the big thick white covering to eat after the one with the big thick white covering to get the sweet taste out of my mouth from the first one that I ate. You all are terrible, terrible for me. I can stop eating that in just a couple of days. And that big thick 100 grams of sugar, 600 calorie hostess honey bun looks so fantastic almost make me sick at my stomach. What happens over the course of time as you succumb to Satan's temptation is that your appetite is being turned away from the things of heaven toward the things of hell, so powerfully so 
that you can no longer enjoy the thing that God designed you to have, chasing after the baited hook of Satan's seduction. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, listen to me. This manner of sin has never and will never come without consequence. The stern warning here, and the answer is to lose ourselves in the love of the wife of our youth. Verse 20 is a bit of a transition. Why, my son, would you be infatuated with a forbidden woman or embrace the breast of a stranger? Man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths. Wicked man's iniquities entrap him. He's entangled in the ropes of his own sin. He'll die because there's no discipline and be lost because of his great stupidity. The practical ramifications of giving in to sin seduction are considerable. The most disastrous consequence which may result from your sin is by far spiritual. Secret sin, again, has this powerful allure. With regards to the sins of pornography, there's this false sense of anonymity. No one else will know it is my secret sin, gripped by pride and a concern to put on the best face possible. We suppress the truth and, and dishonesty. We fail to acknowledge what exists, what is abiding, what is underlying, what must be acknowledged and we must be rid of. Make no mistake, there is an all-seeing God in heaven all-knowing God in heaven, man's ways are before the Lord's eyes and he considers all his paths. For just a moment, forget what others think. What does God know of your life? What is the assessment of the Father? What does he know? What level of insight does, does he enjoy? Someone asked me recently, and I get asked this question from time to time, what's the most discouraging thing about being a pastor? I'll be perfectly honest with you, I don't have a lot of discouragements here. I love being your pastor. I, I will say this openly and publicly. I tell people quite often, I hope, I think, I'm pastoring the last church I'll ever pastor. I, I really feel that way. But I can tell you what the most discouraging thing about being a pastor is. It's when you find out people aren't who you thought they were. I'm a pretty discerning guy. Um, my discernment radar goes off with some frequency. I feel as though I can make a pretty snap judgment that can be fairly reliable. Sometimes the pastor can be fooled. Sometimes over the course of time, we become so crafty, so manipulative. We, we, we master the facade such that we're able to deceive even those closest to us. But I can tell you who's not fooled, an all-seeing and all-knowing God who is in heaven. And if you think your craftiness, your cleverness, your ability to manipulate the situation is going to help you to evade the consequence of your sin, you've got another thing coming. There's a heavy tone about this chapter, frankly, a heavy tone about this message. But I want you to know that all of chapter 5 is predicated on the notion that you don't have to take the bait. You don't have to succumb to the seduction of sin. That's the basis for Solomon's admonition, is it not? Implicit in the passage is, you don't have to go this way. 
What do we say to those who are enticed by and ensnared by sexual sin, sexual immorality, pornographic imagery, adultery, or sin in some other manner? What do we say? We say, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't have to do the things that you have done anymore. Think of the way salvation is characterized in the gospel. What's the Old Testament parallel to our experience of salvation? It's the exodus of Israel from their Egyptian bondage. They were enslaved. They were in chains. They had no liberty, no freedom whatsoever. But God, through the work of Moses, would bring them out and grant them freedom. He would pay the price of their redemption that they might be free in a land that flowed with milk and honey. What has Christ done for us? Through the sacrifice of his life and through the victory of resurrection, he has loosed the chains that bind us by faith and repentance. You don't have to do what you've always done because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is freedom. What did Jesus so famously say? You shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. It's an understated, undersold, precious element of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just that God will forgive us by the blood of Jesus of all of our sins, past and present and future. It is furthermore that God would empower us by the presence of his Holy Spirit to overcome the sin and temptation that so easily ensnares us. You're going to have to own it. Confess it before God. Seek the power to overcome it. If you do, you'll find it in Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I, I pray that you would make us holy and righteous and blameless by the blood of your son, Jesus. I pray that you would give us broken and contrite hearts over our sin broken hearts for those around us, self-destructing in sin. And I pray for the power and movement of your Holy Spirit to give eyes to see and ears to hear. God, I pray for the hardest of hearts, the coldest and most calloused of people. God, that you would awaken them to the disastrous consequences of what they have convinced themselves is secret sin. God, I pray that you would grant the power of your Holy Spirit to break free, to break out, and to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. God, we ask for forgiveness, for mercy, for the strength of your Spirit. God, that you would do in us and through us more than we could ever hope to do in the power of the natural man. God, I pray that you would grant victory in the lives of those who have gathered here, that we might look back at this juncture in our life and recognize that what happened there was not by power nor by might, but by your spirit. God, grant it so. In Jesus' name, amen.